Howdy folks, welcome back to Left Anchor. I'm Ryan Cooper, just me today. Uh, Alexi is busy with work activities, and so you'll have to wait to hear his uh, sultry tones of voice uh, for just a little bit longer. But since we since we recently unlocked the episode that we did on January 6th, I thought it might be worth doing a quick little return to uh, the question of, you know, what manner of movement does the sort of Trump phenomenon represent? Fas- is it fascism or isn't it fascism? Uh, kind of being the headline uh, question. That's a question that has been, you know, argued at great length uh, all over the place. Um, you know, uh, the the Know Your Enemy guys did an episode on it. Um you know, it's been all all back and forth in academia, in Twitter, and elsewhere. And uh, I was recently rereading uh, the book "The Anatomy of Fascism" by Robert Paxton, who's a historian, I think. And I thought uh, it might be worth sort of um, picking out some citations from that book and. Uh, seeing how we might uh, uh, apply that critically, that lens critically to the Trump phenomenon uh, and, you know, how we might, um, what we might learn from this, uh, you know, work of scholarship. So let me start with uh, his definition of fascism, Paxton, that is. He says, what is fascism after, you know, at the end of the book, interestingly, he chooses to sort of uh, catalog the phenomenon and then uh, and then do the definition at the end. But he says, uh, fascism may be defined as a form of political behavior marked by obsessive preoccupation with community decline, humiliation, or victimhood, and by compensatory cults of unity, energy, and purity, in which a mass-based party of committed nationalist militants working in uneasy but effective collaboration with traditional elites abandons democratic liberties and pursues with redemptive violence and without ethical or legal restraints, goals of internal cleansing and external expansion. So, um, you know, this is your sort of bumper sticker slogan. This is this is what fascism is like. But the other thing that I like in uh, his book is that he has a kind of a uh, what you might say is not an over intellectualized approach to you know what the question of what is fascism. You know, fascism was a overtly irrationalist movement that was contemptuous of intellectuals. So if you were trying to sort of taxonomize it as if it were made up of intellectuals who all thought in a coherent fashion, you know, you're going to uh, you're going to be sadly mistaken. And so so he talks about something called uh, mobilizing passions So he talks about uh, mobilizing passions. He says, uh, fascism is more plausibly linked to a set of mobilizing passions that shape fascist action than to a consistent and fully articulated philosophy. At bottom is a passionate nationalism. Allied to it is a conspiratorial and Manichaean view of history as a battle between the good and evil camps, between the pure and the corrupt, in which one's own community or nation has been the victim. And so he uh he he sort of lays these out as um uh, uh quote mostly taken for granted and not always overtly argued as intellectual proposition uh formed the emotional lava that set fascism's foundations. 
We've got uh, a sense of overwhelming crisis beyond the reach of any traditional solutions. The primacy of the group towards which one has duties superior to every right, whether universal or individual, and the subordination of the individual to it. The belief that one's group is a victim, a sentiment that justifies any action without legal or moral limits against its enemies, both internal and external. Dread of the group's decline or the corrosive influence, uh, uh, sorry, corrosive effects of individualistic liberalism, class conflict, and alien influences. The need for closer integration of a purer community by consent, if possible, or by exclusionary violence, if necessary. The need for authority by natural leaders, always male, culminating in a national chief who alone is capable of incarnating the group's destiny. The superiority of the leader's instincts over abstract and universal reason. The beauty of violence and the efficacy of will when they are devoted to the group's success. The right of the chosen people to dominate others without restraint from any kind of human or divine law, right being decided by the sole criterion of the group's prowess within uh, within a Darwinian struggle. So these are the emotional, uh, you know, the, the feelings that create uh, the desire for people um, to, you know, join up in, in fascist like formations or how how fascists can sort of harness people's behavior what he's talking about there so that it's not, you know, and what I want to drill in here is that, you know, there's been a lot of discussion about whether, you know, fascism is like ABCD, like, like, does it fit the taxonomy? And I think what Paxton is usefully talking about here is that you have a sort of uh, a, a collection of um, kind of incoherent and irrational, neurotic, um, and and frankly, somewhat pathological emotions. Uh, you know, a lot of them coming out of the First World War and the trauma uh, that was a uh, you know created by that, and that sort of erupts in all kinds of directions uh, in ways that don't make any kind of logical sense. A lot of times, you know, these are these are not. Uh, uh, learned theorists who like publish treatises, you know, these, these were, um, emotional, uh, politicians who didn't care if they made sense or not, who are after power and had, you know, certain programs. Um, but they were not, you know, in any sense, uh, kind of involved in a seminar. And one important conclusion there is that, uh, you know, the, the, there was a, a large divergence between the two, uh, fascist uh, powers that did, you know, come to come to uh, seize control of a, of a major state in Italy and Germany. Um, you know, the the Germans or the German Nazi Party is like probably the worst, um, you know, like political formation that has ever existed in the history of mankind. Probably, you know, grading on a curve at least. I mean, you're comparing them in like the same league with Timur the Lame and. Uh, you know, other people just absolutely merciless conquerors who, uh, you know, would just like exterminate people for a laugh or just out of some kind of crazy crusade. Um, and, uh, you know, they were also incredibly aggressive and successful and, and, uh, you know, at the helm of the, one of the like top three world powers, you know, like, uh, incredibly effective military and so on. And then you had Italian fascism, which was, not really so you know it was a little pathetic almost like it was it was definitely sinister and they definitely did some atrocities in uh, ethiopia um 
but it wasn't any kind of world conquering uh, colossus like the Nazi party seemed to be, at least plausibly for a while. You know, this was a um, a fascism that was uh, moderate, for lack of a better word. It was it was not insanely uh, aggressive and bent on world domination or just or or national destruction, if that cannot be obtained, you know, Um, uh you know, when when it was clear that uh, Mussolini had involved Italy in um, a conflict that it could not possibly win, um, you know, the, he was overthrown and was only reinstalled uh, thanks to the, you know, the backing of of uh, the the Nazi military. And then he even still was eventually, you know, captured and lynched by uh, Italian partisans because there was enough of a, you know, a, a, a residual of kind of national self-preservation to think that like, well, let's not just let's surrender, you know, let's give up. Let's uh, let's face facts. Whereas in Germany, that was not the case. It was it was, um, you know, we're going to make total war on the Soviets and fight to the last man. And we're not going to surrender until the the allied armies have literally stomped into the capital and the leader is dead. Um, much more, you know, unified, ideologically successful. But, you know, the point I want to drive home here is that to be fascist does not mean you have to be Nazi. You don't have to be Hitler. You can be a kind of a goofball. You can be Italian. You know, you can be a little bit incoherent and and not particularly good at fighting in the military. You know, um, there there's a there's a wide range of options that are that are that are possible. Uh, another thing I want to I want to emphasize in this book that Paxson I think demonstrates uh, quite well is that fascist uh, fascist formations never came to power either by winning an election outright as in a majority you know in a parliament and they never uh, conquered power either through some kind of coup they were in all cases appointed by conservative elites who saw them as the only way to defeat the left, which they were willing to countenance basically anything to stop that from happening. So basically, you know, the king of Italy um, uh, basically agreed with Mussolini to, you know, like to make him prime minister. Um, Franz von Papen uh, in Germany, he he talked to elderly uh, President Hindenburg into appointing uh, Adolf Hitler uh, as the Chancellor of Germany, you know. And from there, they conquered total power by, you know, basically, you know, extra legal abuse of the parliamentary process and so on. Um, it was it was never the case that, uh, you know, when January 6th was happening, I compared it to the Beer Hall Putsch. And the and I said it was actually more successful than the Beer Hall Putsch. The Beer Hall Putsch obviously was the um, attempt by Hitler and uh, General Ludendorff and a bunch of uh, Nazi militants to uh, conquer a, a provincial, I think it was Bavaria, but just like a provincial um, uh, legislature, uh, you know, the local government, and then from there try to make a, a, an attack on national power. It didn't even get off the ground. 
they were confronted by, you know, loyal police. There was a shootout. A bunch of Nazis were killed and a few police as well. And, uh, you know, it, they didn't didn't even make it uh, to the province, to the to the seat of the legislature. Whereas, you know, the the Trump putschists on January 6th actually did penetrate the um, the halls of Congress and they actually did interrupt the counting, the certification of the electoral votes to award the presidency to Joe Biden. Um, you know, the that has never happened before in American history. The Capitol uh, has never been stormed by, you know, t- terrorists, whatever you want to call them, uh, politi- people attempting to use violence to interrupt the democratic process. The point of the comp- comparison to the Beer Hall Putsch is not to say that uh, the Beer Hall Putsch was a very formidable event and it proves, you know, and, th- and so these guys are just like Hitler. Is that like uh, the, the, the fascist conquest of power uh, w- started in the early 20s um, and then the 19, the, the teens um, with the absolutely farcical, idiotic bunch of belligerent morons trying to play dress up and do a coup. And it failed spectacularly. And then a decade later, Hitler was chancellor of Germany. And finally, the, the, um, as, f- as far as this book, I, I, um, I thought I was struck by one th- thing that Paxson pointed out, which was the role of political, uh, deadlock in bringing about the the bringing the fascists to power that basically uh in both italy and germany you know in the moment of crisis um in the in the early 20s in italy and in the early 30s in germany the political system basically ceased to function um you know in in uh in Germany, you know, you had these repeated parliamentary elections that were dominated by the uh, the the uh, communists and the Nazis, both of whom were explicitly dedicated to overthrowing uh, democracy, and um, that made uh, governing with you know with through ordinary par- parliamentary mechanisms very difficult, if not impossible. And in fact, in Germany, they had to rely on the particular clause of the Constitution that allowed for rule by decree during emergencies. And naturally, the conservative governments, um, they, you know, use that uh, decree power to push through a bunch of austerity, you know, and, and made everything worse. But he says, Paxton says, when a constitutional system seizes up in deadlock and democratic institutions cease to function, the political arena tends to narrow. The circle of emergency decision makers may become review, <coughs> reduced to a few individuals, perhaps a head of state along with his immediate civil and military advisors. In earlier chapters of this book, we need to look at the very broad context in order to understand the founding and rooting of fascism at the stage when the breakdown of democratic regimes finally opens the way for the fascist leader to make a serious bid for power. The concentration of responsibility in the hands of a few key individuals requires something nearer a biographical perspective. So, you know, the the point here being that, like... uh, when the when democratic systems cease to function, then uh, political 
formations that say democracy is the problem and what we need to do is, uh, you know, get rid of democracy or at least like, you know, uh, curtail it to a great degree so that we can break through the logjam um, and do something, they gain, you know, more and more plausibility. And one more thing I want to, to mention um, regarding, regarding Paxton is the role of the complicity of elites. Uh, so obviously, you know, I've, I've mentioned uh, von Papen, uh, the King of Italy, etc. You know, these, Basically, you know, at all points, like like conservatives would always prefer to win at any price, you know, uh, uh, even if it, call, it requires like calling up the madmen of the extreme right. Um, and even now that we know what that can look like in the uh, uh, in, you know, in, in history, carnage and devastation that that can unleash. And so I just want to go through a recent bit of news, which has kind of flown under the radar. This is the 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 coup memo, the coup memo uh, by John Eastman, I believe. Yeah, this is a this was a guy who was working with uh, Trump's legal team in uh, uh, in uh, the transition period and before, and um, he is not. Uh, this guy is not a total, you know, wingnut whack job, at least in terms of, um, you know, his affiliations. This guy is a member of the conservative legal establishment. He is a tenured, he was a tenured prof at Chapman University School of Law. He was in the Federalist Society. He clerked for Clarence Thomas, you know, the Supreme Court Justice. He is a prominent member of the Claremont Institute. Um, and, you know, he was working for the, the, the legal team of the president of the United States. Um, one of the, one of the most you know, prominent conservative lawyers in the country. And he, uh, sent this, this memo out that was, uh, somehow obtained by Bob Woodward and Robert Costa and then CNN. And, um, uh, basically, you know, you have a, a two page memo about like how to steal the presidential election. Um, and basically, he just has this this six part, uh, th this this list listicle of how to overturn the government by just like reading the electoral count uh, act in the most duplicitous way you can, and then openly violating it and hoping that the the uh, the court will save you. Um, so step one here. Vice President Pence presiding over the joint session or Senate pro tempore Grassley, if Pence recuses himself, begins to open and count the ballots, starting with Alabama, without conceding that the procedure specified by the Electoral Count Act of going through the states alphabetically is required. When he gets to Arizona, he announces that he has multiple slates of electors and so is going to defer a decision on that until finishing the other states. This would be the first break with the procedures set out in the act. At the end, he announces that because of the ongoing disputes in the seven states, there are no electors that can be deemed validly appointed in those states. That means that the total number of electors appointed, the language of the 12th Amendment, is 454. This reading of the 12th Amendment has also been advanced by Harvard Law Professor Lawrence Tribe. 
A majority of the electors appointed would therefore be 228. There are at this point 232 votes for Trump, 222 votes for Biden. Pence then gavels President Trump as reelected. So, you know, th- this is it's it's a ultra tendentious fucking bullshit way of, uh, you know, just like t- try- making up a ridiculous technicality to overturn a Democratic election. You know, the, the Electoral Count Act is a fucking goofy uh, piece of legislation. But, you know, there's been it's been a settled norm, a settled institution that in the United States, the, the way the Electoral College works is you have the vote in every state that happens, you know, according to the rules in that state. You count the votes, then whoever wins, whoever gets the most votes in that state um they win all the electoral votes, except for Maine and, and Nebraska. They do it by congressional district, I think. But, you know, those things are well understood. And here you are, uh, uh, basically a formula for saying, well, there's a dispute. And so uh, we're throwing those states out where we didn't win. And so uh, by the states that we did win, uh, Trump's president, you know, call it good. And, you know, th- th- this is this is no different than going up to, you know, I mean, storming the Capitol with guns and, and saying, you know, I'm president now. Um, at bottom, you know, this is total fucking bullshit. It didn't it didn't work, but it was attempted. And uh, this, you know, lends some credence to uh, the the argument that the January 6th putschists actually had a reasonable plan, a plan that they thought would work. They just needed to bully Vice President Pence into saying Trump president and uh, get the Congress to, you know, like violently force them to not object to that. Now Trump's president. He can just stay in there. He'll he'll be he'll remain in office because remember, in January 6th, Biden doesn't take office according to the law until January 20th. So you've got a whole another couple of weeks there that you can use to exploit, you know, basically just a rule by the the fucking the hammer and the club. And so this, I think, you know, would it, it all t- taken together. It shows the United States suffered an attempted overthrow of democratic government with the active ascent and participation of the president. And that, you know, that is unprecedented in the in American history. And yet, uh evening uh network news shows uh did not mention it once. Um as of uh this is uh, September 22nd. So as of two a couple of days after the uh, memo was posted. I don't think it's been mentioned since then either. Um, the three big network news shows, CBS Evening News, uh, NBC Nightly News, World News Tonight, or their morning shows on those networks, they didn't mention it once. Not a single time. I think it is... It is. Uh, you can make a very good argument that the United States... That, that Donald Trump and the and the conservative Republican Party is like, if not fascist, then pretty openly 
close to fascism. Um, you know, obsessive preoccupation with community decline. Make America great again. Humiliation. That's every Trump speech. Um, victimhood is the absolute engine of uh, conservative politics. It's every single thing you read on on conservative uh, media is about how liberals are victimizing conservatives by making them get the vaccine so they don't die, by raising their taxes, by, uh, you know, allowing Joe Biden to be elected president. We have, you know, nationalism. That's pretty obviously the the subtext of of Tucker Carlson. Um, we have especially effective collaboration with traditional elites. I mean, the 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 whole Republican Party has been swallowed by Trumpism. You know, the the few remaining uh, people who are not uh, on board with Trump have been driven out. Um, abandoned democratic liberties that. Uh, is, I mean, January 6th, that's a, when you're talking about overturning an election by crossing your eyes and reading the law in a deliberately stupid way, you know, you're, you've crossed that line. We don't have plans to wage war on, you know, to, to like annex new territories exactly. But we did see when Biden withdrew from Afghanistan uh, all of the Trumpy fucking America first so-called like isolationists or whatever uh, turned on a dime and started demanding Afghanistan be reoccupied, you know. Um, so there is still a similar, you know, kind of um, aggressive foreign policy, even if, you know, as I think uh, there's really no territory that could be sort of conquered in a way that would be pleasing to uh, the the conservative base. I mean, you know, the United States is, I think, kind of at the limit of a single national uh, state to be able to, uh, uh, you know, uh, govern in terms of size. But uh, most especially, you know, the the deadlock thing. You know, you you look at the Democrats right now have a have a trifecta you know very rare occasion in washington um they they've got the house and the senate and the presidency and they can't do shit with it and you know the thing about trump is uh they really didn't do much with it either in 2017 and 2018 you know they passed a big tax cut for the rich that was it more or less and you look at the American constitutional structure, uh, we're not in a Great Depression, but our our constitutional system has evolved to a point to where it is virtually impossible to do anything. Um, you know, you, you, you got to get shit through the committees in both the House and the Senate. Then you got to get it through the House and you got to get it through the Senate. And the Senate and the House are elected on wildly different uh, electorates. You know, the the Wyoming gets two senators, has 550,000 people, and uh, California gets two senators. It's got 37 million people, something like that. So the, that, any, uh, that any majority party is going to be able to control both of those things at once, 
uh, highly unlikely. Then you got the presidency elected on a third system that also does not have a, a popular, um, a simple popular vote. Most vote wins. You have this absurd fucking electoral college in which it is technically possible to lose the popular vote by four to one and still win the presidency. If you just win your most efficient states, you know, and lose the other ones by 100%. Obviously, that would never happen. But the fact that it's theoretically possible is insane. And in fact, um, twice in uh, 20 years, we have seen the loser win. All this is making the political system less and less representative of the the people. And it's, uh, you know, I think a major reason why uh, the American uh, welfare system, why our basic system of government is such a piece of shit. It's so hard to do anything in this country that like shit just piles up. You know, you just you have health care. Look at health care um, uh, attempts to create a kind of universal Medicare for all system. We've been trying to do this since the 1930s. Even when Roosevelt had gigantic majorities, you know, in the, the 60s votes in the Senate and like two thirds of the House, he didn't even try it. Uh, Truman tried it in 48, failed. Um, Lyndon Johnson tried uh, and got through Medicare and uh, Medicaid and um that was nice, but that left out the majority of the population. Uh, Bill Clinton tried. He failed. Um, oh, and uh, Teddy Kennedy tried with Nixon, or he stopped the Nixon plan, rather. Nixon tried. That didn't work. Uh, Obamacare uh, in, in 2010, that covered about a, th- a third of the un- uninsured population. And it's proved to be, you know, its signature idea is largely a failure. I mean... No other country could be sitting here just twiddling our thumbs and uh, just just watching people die unnecessarily for 90 years and not just fucking do what Germany did in 1883. You know, it's because our fucking system is so unwieldy and it's worse. Now, it's so much worse than it used to be back in the day, back in the 19... um, you know, from for most of American history, actually, you could do coalition governments because the parties were not disciplined and organized. Um, you you uh, you know, you had liberal Republicans, conservative Democrats, various combinations of these things. And so the political pressure, the lava of like discontent could sort of spurt through and you could get little piecemeal reforms here and there. Now it's nothing. Now, if you don't have. If you don't have your trifecta, which happens like once a decade, basically, um, and then you can't do shit. And, you know, what, what you can do is you can give money to Israel and, and pass the defense budget. That's pretty much it. You want to tackle, tackle one of these huge problems, paid leave, lack of paid leave, you know, that we're basically a hundred years behind the rest of the world in that department too. No, that's, uh, that's, that's, going to require one of these things. And it is balanced right now on a knife edge. And I think that that is a major, major contributor to this sort of far, far right thing that's saying like, well, yeah, overturning democracy. What fucking good does democracy do? Why, what is the, you know, cheating, cheating to, to like, uh, you know, so that we, you know, respect this manifestly dysfunctional system. I don't think it's, uh, you know, 
I mean, that's not the entire reason. You know, there is a, the the Republican, just the general uh, pathology on the far right. But the failure of the status quo enables that. And I think the, the failure of liberalism um, also enables that type of thing. You look at how uh, the Democratic Party is so totally unserious about dealing with, you know, getting their shit through. You know, you have a, a minority of Democrats in the House and the Senate, like, like probably less than 10 in the House and the Senate. They don't want to pass what the party has been running on for four years and is like objectively needed by any kind of moral consideration of what their own voters need and what they themselves personally have said in each and every case in their own campaign literature. You know, th- this is like bare minimum shit. And it's bare minimum shit that's not only necessary, but it will help them, you know, maintain power. And yet, here we are waiting on tenterhooks to see if Joe Manchin and Kristen Cinema are going to fucking vote to to do, you know, d- like shit that other countries had in the 1940s. And so, you know, uh, I would say, I would say that that it is basically inarguable that what we see in the Trump right, the far right in this country is fascist adjacent at the least. But I think maybe more importantly, even if it isn't, uh, uh, I don't think that really matters because whatever it is, it's bad. I, I, uh, I, I, I want to recommend this article by, by Adolf Reed in nonsite.org. And he says, quote, While parsing their various flavors of reaction can be an interesting and useful undertaking, that's not my objective here, nor am I principally concerned with whether some, all, or most of them qualify as fascist or even a fascist front. The point is that, however taxonomized, they constitute an extremely dangerous and organized political force in the U.S. And it is not far-fetched to worry that 2022 or 2024 could mark the end of the proceduralist democracy to which we've become, to which we've been accustomed. They've been laying the groundwork. In addition to their concerted efforts to restrict voting, Republican-controlled state legislatures have been plotting strategies for attempting to nullify federal laws, passing bills intended to prohibit municipalities from enforcing them. Those legislatures have also been working overtime to eliminate civil liberties, whistleblowing, whatever shards remain of reproductive freedom, and have been legislating a reactionary culture wars agenda on a scale not seen since the darkest period of anti-communist hysteria and Southern massive resistance in the wake of the Brown decision. I think that's right. And so, yeah, the, the, all this, I think, tends to, tends, has given me a little bit of a skeptical eye about academics. You know, no shade on my academic listeners here, um, my academic friends and so on and so on. But like the the practice of academia, you know, that this kind of quibbling over definitions is is really kind of the bread and butter of like academic practice in this country. It's like, how do you get how do you become a successful academic? You need to, uh, you know, you need to argue about words, you know, you need to, um, you know, develop some sort of argument for a new a uh, 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 thesis about you know history, politics, economics, whatever you know you you got to produce something you gotta you gotta make some scholarship. You don't need to like organize a 
labor union, uh, you know, in the fucking auto workers or whatever, you know, I mean, some people have participated in that sort of thing, you know, again, and, and I think that a lot of, you know, academics are, are, are sympathetic to, uh, you know, the, the union movement in general, they've, they, they, they've helped it. Um, they've helped the grad student unions. Others, uh, I've I have seen some prominent labor historians uh, uh, work to bust their own grad student unions as well. But I think that like there is a real there's a real sense on the American left that arguing about definitions and like setting up different camps, so different schools of interpretation is the most important thing. And I think it reflects the degree to which uh, American politics on the left is divorced from any kind of mass movement, realistically speaking. You know, the DSA has something like 100,000 members. Um, labor unions got a couple million. We're talking about fairly marginal groups. Most workers, almost all private sector workers are not members of a union. Um you know the, the 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 media is sort of culturally left in some ways, but uh, culturally conservative in others. So you know, I guess as a as an intellectual, and you know, as someone with a academic degree, um, you know, I've become sort of cordially suspicious of this type of type of uh, behavior. Is it, you know, arguing about about uh, about politics, about like rationality and so on, uh, 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 like like what are what are we dealing with? Like like let's perceive what's happening in front of us. That is very important, and that's something that does have to be hashed out with argument. But I think it is also very important to guard against the possibility of arguing for arguing's sake. I guess is what I'm saying here, and I can I can see that when it happens. You know, I may not be a PhD, but I know I can see when someone is uh, quibbling. And I've seen a lot of people quibbling with, uh, you know, uh, whether or not the, the, the January 6th thing was important or not in a way that, frankly, is unbefitting member of the left who would be the primary victim of, you know, any sort of Trumpy dictatorship, which I think is not at all out of the question. And I think uh, as a as a final comment, um, you know, I mentioned before how, you know, you, you could have various different kinds of, you know, fascisms. You can sort of have moderate or very more extreme fascisms. And uh, Paxton talks about this as, as sort of like a process of further radicalization or, or decay. Uh, that that basically the Italian fascism was sort of the uh, on the process of decaying into a normal authoritarian, you know, conservative regime like your classic right wing dictatorship that was really not novel in in any sense. Whereas, you know, the the Nazi regime, you know, just immolated itself in a frenzy of of radicalization that just ratcheted up and up and up until it burned up the entire society and even the leaders of the Nazi party themselves. And on the one level that can be, you know, you could think of that in a sort of comforting way. You could be like, well, the, you know, the U S uh, you know, we don't have anybody like Hitler on the horizon. 
But if you look at the U.S. in a sort of like structural position in the economy and the and the world, uh, we sure look a lot more like Germany than Italy uh, in their 1920s, uh, you know, positions. We have by far the largest military in the world. Um, we have a huge stockpile of nuclear weapons. Uh, we have a culture of fanaticism in uh, you know, certain precincts of the military, to be sure. And, um, you know, we have open white supremacists, uh, basically, uh, the open white supremacy is now the, the, the dogma of the Republican party. You know, you, we, we saw like Tucker Carlson is now talking about great replacement theory, like on a regular basis. And now Republican party politicians, Matt Gates defending him on that saying it's racist to point out that he is a Nazi. And so the prospect of uh, the United States going fash is really, I think, profoundly alarming. Um, you know, this would not be an Italian fascism. You know, I don't know if it would be like Germany, but, you know, you're talking about an, a very, very formidable uh, a, a global power. Not a second-rate not a third rank, you know, China is the only one who's even close to us economically and militarily speaking. No, not even close. And so I think it was fairly important to, even if, you know, you think the chances of the United States going uh, to the far right are somewhat remote. Uh, it's still worth working very, very hard to stop that from happening uh, by, by almost any means necessary. Um, and so anyway, um, not sure how long that turned out. Well, we're, uh, three quarters of an hour, but, um, that's all I had to, to say on that particular issue, but we thank you for listening. Um, we'll be back to our sort of normally scheduled programming. We've had, we had a little bit of an impromptu break there because of, you know, some vacations and some, uh, some work stuff cropping up. So we'll be back in the saddle soon. And um, we thank you for listening. We'll see you in the next episode. Bye-bye.